Welcome to the I.O. Podcast, an initiative of the Electronic Communication Committee of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, sharing perspectives and challenging ideas on current topics and trends in the field. I am your host, Kelly Stewart. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the presenters and guests and do not reflect the views or constitute any official statement of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. On this episode of the IO Podcast, we'll be talking about machine learning, what it is, what it is not, and how it's currently being researched and applied to alleviate certain responsibilities and tasks in both the selection and recruitment contexts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think this is a good time to really define what people mean by machine learning and what that actually is. Absolutely. This is Dr. Neil Morelli. Neil's the head of product for the Cole Group, a retained executive search firm serving high-growth tech companies in the Bay Area. Before joining the Cole Group, he worked as a solution consultant for Logiserve, an internet-based assessment company. Much of his research has involved the equivalency and use of mobile devices for delivering online selection assessments. Machine learning is, is just simply automated model building. So we do modeling all the time within IO psychology and you know we're building regression models. Um, we're building substructural equation models. We're building, you know, we're, we're developing and measuring constructs. So we're building models all the time. And really what machine learning is, it's really nothing new. It's just um, a more automated, more in the word I would use, more engineered form of building those models. So it's not really that much different than what we're doing. It's just uh, allowing you to capture and analyze more data and features. So the variables that would be contributing predictors into your model um, and combine those in a way that increases the accuracy and how quickly you can get a prediction out of the equation. So you know, with a linear regression, for example, we might identify all of the variables that would go into that multiple regression and then collect all the data and then you know, do your analysis and see whether you're predicting and what your errors like and, and those types of things. But with machine learning, it's able to do some of that stuff for you from both identifying the features, uh, combining and compiling them in a way that might add um, your prediction or your ability to explain unique amounts of variance that a linear regression wouldn't give you. So you know, there's some, some stats in there, but, but basically, Machine learning is an old concept that is just now able to really take hold and be very pervasive in the marketplace because we now have the technology in the form of computing power, in the form of just systems and tools that people are able to capture new types of data with and then leverage it in a way where we can add to the ability to make predictions more accurately than we were, than we were able to before. So could you describe, how are you teaching a machine to learn? Is that something that's, you know, an essential component or is that not as big as a role as, as, you know, the average person would think it would be? Yeah, so, I mean, there, when you say machine learning, that's what some technologists call a suitcase word, where there's a lot of baggage, there's a lot of like implications and associations that we make with the word learning that might not necessarily be true. Um, and so when you say machine learning, it's not that you give 
the machine uh, a topic and say, you know, when you point the, the algorithm or the equation at it and say, you know, tell me what you think of this kind of thing. It's not, it's not the same way that we might learn a topic. Um, what you've done essentially, at least in supervised learning, is that you're giving the equation, you're giving the algorithm. There's no, you know, robot sitting somewhere. It's just, you know, the equation, the algorithm. You're giving the algorithm uh, a trained or a supervised set of data saying, these are the things that you should be looking for, and here are the inputs. Now combine those in as many combinations as possible to give us that same outcome that you would, that we're telling you to expect to get. So in that sense, um, it's a very narrow uh, definition of learning in that we're telling it specifically what to look for, supplying it with the data that is are needed to figure that out. And then the machine is doing the, the trial and error process somewhat in a learning way to combine those variables and those features in a way that gets you to those same outcomes or as close as it can um, to those same outcomes. Now, the problem with doing that sometimes is that based on the algorithm that you're using, you could be overfitting the model, obviously. So what you're, what you're saying is that by by coming up with an coming up with a particular algorithm that gives you the, the, the expected outcomes as precisely as um, you could, what you're doing is that once you put that, that same algorithm into the real world and say, here's a test data set that I want you to get the same outcomes, but when you don't know what they are, you're trying to predict them. Um, what you're doing is you're introducing more error there because you've over you've created a model that's too sensitive to the changes in your training data set. Um, all that to say is you can go too far by being too prescriptive in the way you're telling the algorithm to look for the outcomes that it's that it's expecting to see and having an overfit model. So really a lot of where the data science comes in for at least machine learning is getting that right balance of not being too sensitive to the training, to what the variance and the nuances of the training data set are, but also to be sensitive enough to where it's picking up the signals and it's getting you an accurate prediction. You know, it seems to be a pretty hot topic, this this topic of AI and machine learning, and, and these sort of buzzwords seem to pop up a lot, I see in Twitter and LinkedIn articles, things like that. Um, but I think it's good to, to have a clarification on where machine learning resides within the scope of AI. You know, is a machine learning solution necessarily an AI solution? necessarily have a an AI solution if it's just using machine learning um, but if you're saying that there's AI involved machine learning could be a component or a facet of that um, like you I'm, I'm still learning some of this stuff myself and sometimes it can be a gray area and something that people disagree on um, but but that's really my understanding is that you know Machine learning could be a, necess uh, a, a, a necessary component of AI, but not a sufficient component for a full AI solution. A full AI solution is the ability to identify some of those features um, that you would have told the machine learning algorithm in maybe a simpler format to say, these are the things that you should be looking at, and now combine them in such a way that would give you the most accurate or um, um, predictive solution. But in an AI solution, you're really allowing the computer to make those associations on its own and identify those features out of the unstructured data that you're giving it. 
So in, in those types of ways, AI is a much bigger umbrella that machine learning is kind of underneath, as far as I understand it. And um, if you just incorporate machine learning, you're, you're not necessarily saying, oh, we're, this tool or the system now is, has got AI introduced into it. Um, it could be just as simple as saying, you know, we've developed this, this um, support vector machines equation to run data and then get a predicted solution similar to what we've done in, in the app that we've been developing for the full group. Neil goes on to share an interesting narrative that conveys the evolution of his understanding of machine learning that he acquired by engaging in some hands-on applied work uh, involving the interface between assessment delivery and technology. APT was developing a leadership assessment tool that was productized, um, and it was sort of like an online assessment center. And I was able to help out a little bit with some of the materials, some of the, the stimuli for that, and um, some of the items and, and the writing. And I got really interested in the product side of what they were doing. And at the same time, I was starting to do mobile research, uh, mobile devices. So um, I got interested in sort of technology and then how we were productizing to, um, IO assessments with technology. And then uh, through a former professor of mine at UTC, I went to the master's program at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. They recruited me to be a part of an assessment startup that they were building called LogiServe. Hmm. And it was for customer service and sales. So, you know, for the first four years or so of my career, I was working uh, in consulting and then kind of started to get into the business side of assessment delivery and, and products and, and how they interacted with technology and um, that's kind of what landed me this job I'm in now. I currently work for a, a boutique um, executive search firm called The Cold Group. Hmm. And we serve the technology industry in Silicon Valley. So um, I'm working on a recruiting tool, a recruiting product for their, our internal practice to identify candidates. And um, I was looking at a problem set that needed an engineered solution. And by that, I mean... We needed to come up with a way to automate the process, the decision-making that the recruiters were using for flagging whether candidates, uh, based on their background, are relevant for the searches for job. Kind of in the need for developing a solution, a product, a tool, a web app, uh, I've been working with a data scientist to really identify ways that we can automate what the recruiters do on on an everyday basis. And so that's what got me interested is that you know we're developing a product, we're developing uh, an uh, internet-based tool, so we need something that could, could plug into that and give us predictions uh, that were accurate and that could scale as we add data to the system. And machine learning is really well-suited for those types of problems. Um, it's really well-suited for the problems where you need um, that type of automation, both on the data capturing side, the coding side, the wrangling, and then the analysis and how those data are presented to the end user. Um, so that's what got me interested. It was just really, a, this is the, these are the problems that we're trying to solve, and machine learning seems to, to fit the bill. So an interesting question to think about is, what is the problem for which an AI or machine learning solution is wanted or needed? Uh, In Neil's case, the problem is having to spend too much time on menial, repeatable, day-to-day tasks, and uh, this is a situation where machine learning could be leveraged to alleviate this by automating this process, making it easier, saving time. 
Neil speaks a little bit to the user experience and what this actually means. Could you sort of just summarize what are you doing with the app now and what are your hopes for the future? What are you hoping to accomplish uh, with, this, with this app? What directions are you going in? The app that we're building is an internal app for just our recruiters use. And it's really just a way to quantify and enable the data that we're already collecting and the recruiters are already gathering on, on a day-to-day basis and um, build an engineering or engineered solution on top of those data that is searchable, that could potentially be um, a recommendation engine. So you're saying, okay, you've looked at people like this, you might also be interested in these other people here, or uh, this person uh, maybe was appropriate for this landscape or this job spec that we're looking at. They might also be appropriate for this one. So um, I think what we've accomplished to date has been really just a way to increase or indicate the amount of relevance that a candidate has for a search by, uh, as a function of their, their background and how similar those are to other people that have been added to searches in the past. And so what we're trying to do is just predict that degree of relevance, you know, how many different searches should this person potentially be added to. And so we have historical data like that that we were able to train on and then um, come up with a prediction based off of the the variables that contribute to uh, a candidate's background. So all that to say, we're just trying to save the recruiters time and um, make what they do more efficient and give them a starting point to then say, okay, the, the computer, the system has done some of this thinking for me so that I can now focus my efforts onto maybe a smaller or more curated list of people and then really dive into them and do what humans are are the best at is to really you know make those unstructured associations and look for some of those patterns that um, might not necessarily be clear or coming out of the numbers um, uh, or you know understanding the context of things being able to ask more difficult or deeper questions um, actually reach out to those people and see what they're doing and what they're interested in and what some of their career goals so um, the way I look at it as I'm trying to make the recruiters more efficient by reducing some of that just brute force pattern matching that they would have to do on their own and automate that such that they can now spend more time interacting with candidates in a deeper way. So can you describe the user experience working with machine learning? So there's really not a user in the sense that you don't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to do machine learning now. It's more of it's a tool that you might bake into a larger process where you're trying to fold in and, and aggregate different um, streams of data and then come up with a prediction that would be more accurate and more you could generate that prediction more quickly than you could if you were just to do that all that work all yourself and come up with you know maybe a regression a linear regression um, prediction. So when we came to our tool and our app that we were developing, it was more of, we didn't necessarily have a, an explanatory problem. We weren't looking to say, why are these people the most relevant for our searches? We were trying to say, we know that this is sort of the universe of people that should be relevant, but how relevant are they? We, need, we needed predictive power and we needed efficiency and we needed that engineering component because we wanted to build it in a part of our app. Um, so that's where the user experience comes in, is what it allows you to do.
So my background is primarily in psychometrics and item response theory. And I've always been really passionate about statistics and I've always loved learning new techniques and finding new ways to learn from data. This is Dr. Rachel King. Rachel is a product development consultant at DDI based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She specializes in building leadership tests and assessments with an emphasis on psychometrics. She also conducts applied research on machine learning, natural language processing, and other statistical modeling techniques. So when I started hearing more and more about machine learning, the idea that there was a new class of models that could potentially improve our field's ability to predict performance or to gain insights from text data without having to spend hours reading all of the available text was really highly appealing to me. Uh, and it was something that I wanted to learn more about and be able to harness. And I was able to start doing that a little bit uh, with a research group. Um, when I started interning at DDI, a few of my coworkers and I were really interested in starting to explore some of this in ways to learn, use machine learning. Uh, so we started up an informal research group to better understand these techniques and how they could be applied to our research. Okay, interesting. So what what sparked your you and your colleagues interest in, in doing some hands-on work with this at DDI? I think it was largely just the fact that we had large amounts of data and wanted the opportunity to, particularly with text data, to be able to analyze it and really pick up themes and gain a better understanding of what was in the data without having to spend hours upon hours upon hours going through tens of thousands of cases in some instances. Um, so it really was the ability to gain deeper insight and to analyze things that uh, would be very time prohibitive to analyze otherwise. Okay, cool. So you mentioned this uh, sort of laborious process of going through text data. What types of text data are you referring to that you, you're using machine learning to uh, mitigate the issues and the labor associated with the process? Uh, so there are a variety of types of uh, text data that this can be used with. Um, in my case, I had the opportunity to use uh, latent semantic analysis um, or LSA, which is a natural language processing technique um, to dig into some um, essays and get to understand what the relationships among those was and then uh, be able to explore the idea of um, using natural language processing techniques to score essays as opposed to human raters. Okay, so looking more in the selection context. Yes, but there are a variety of other applications of this as well. It can be applied to things like um, an employee engagement survey. If you have a number of open-ended responses, this can be a technique for pulling out different topics in there or even just um, looking at sentiment analysis. So trying to figure out if overall people have a very positive or a negative tone in their responses can be something that's helpful, particularly after a large organizational change or something of that nature. Rachel goes a little bit more into detail about the different types of techniques she's used, uh, machine learning techniques, throughout her career. She goes a bit more into detail on latent semantic analysis, or LSA. She also explains how this technique is actually one of the underpinnings for how our smartphone is able to understand us when we shout a command at it from across the room or ask it for directions when we're lost. Sure, um, so for the sake of brevity, I've narrowed it down to just uh, two techniques that, um, so that way I don't have to go into detail on, on too many things here, just time permitting. Um, so one, and I mentioned uh, latent semantic analysis already. Um, it is a, a type of natural language processing. 
um, in natural language processing is a subfield of machine learning and artificial intelligence that focuses on uh, the ability of an algorithm to understand or interpret text or speech. So that's actually what allows your smartphone or your smart speaker to understand you when you yell at it from across the room to turn the music down or ask it what the weather is outside. In latent semantic analysis specifically is a dimension reduction technique. So in other words, it's a lot like a factor analysis. With latent semantic analysis or LSA, you represent the text as a matrix and then words are weighted based on how frequently they occur within a given document and then within the larger set of documents you're analyzing as well. A technique known as a singular value decomposition is applied to that matrix to reduce the number of dimensions. And like I said, it, it's very similar to conducting a factor analysis. This might be venturing too far as to, to say this, but could you could you potentially use machine learning to uh, conduct a factor analysis or uh, to supplement your you know conducting a, a factor analysis? I wouldn't say that. I would say that um, there are a lot of machine learning techniques that are very similar to more traditional techniques that, as IO psychologists, we learn in graduate school. So it's not. A, technically the same as a factor analysis, but it's very similar. Likewise, there are techniques such as uh, support vector machines that end up being mathematically similar to a linear regression or something else that we might be more familiar with. Um, so I would, it's a kind of a different class of models, but oftentimes a background in IO psychology will give you some insight into how these models are being used and allow you to draw parallels to things that are a little bit more comfortable based on your statistical background. Is that something that you could apply to a qualitative study or a qualitative research? Yes, definitely. Um, it's definitely a good way to start to dig through some of that. Um, I remember in grad school, I definitely did some open-ended qualitative coding, and the idea that there's there was an alternative uh, would have been something nice to have known back then. Um, and so that is one one application is that you can go through and classify large amounts of qualitative text more easily and be able to have a larger sample as well that way. Um, you're not confined by the number of hours you have available to categorize text. I was curious about random forest. Could you speak a little more on that or, or maybe just try to simplify what it is as best as you can? So a random forest is essentially a group of decision trees um, that are put together and then it's a Again, it's going to be another machine learning technique that's used for classification. It can also be used for regression as well. Um, and essentially what a decision tree is, typically you have different decision points and you have data that filters through. So for example, if you had, you'd have at the top of your decision tree, if you had a survey about um, turnover, for example, you might see the top node is tenure. And so people who have been in the organization more than two years go to the left, people less than two years go to the right. And you keep having decision points, and these can be questions in your survey or what have you, um, that categorize people into different buckets. And at the bottom, you'll have, um, for example, percent likelihood of leaving the organization. And it shows you kind of the path that each person would take to get to whether or not they're likely to leave. Um, and so a random forest is going to be multiple of these trees put together and then using that as a, a classification or regression technique. Um, so you, you talked about um, how you, you learned R or you dabbled with R in grad school, correct? 
Yes, a little bit in grad school. I picked it up um, a little bit more once I started uh, my internship. It was something that I, I needed a little bit more just for data manipulation and things like that. Uh, but I had started dabbling actually in undergrad. Um, I was a stats minor, and so all the courses at my undergrad institution were taught with R. R seems to be a very valuable skill set to have, especially going into uh, the field post-grad um, or just learning it while you're in the field as a practitioner. So could you, could you speak to that about how your understanding of R uh, or your dabbling in R contributed to the type of work you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so R really did contribute a lot to my ability to um, begin working with machine learning models and things like that. A lot of um, machine learning packages are either in R or in Python. So having a basic understanding of R or another programming language is essential to begin to do some of this work. Um, I originally started with R, but having picked up one programming language, it is easier to start to pick up a second one. Um, so I have also done some work in Python. Um, and Python really does make handling large data sets more straightforward than R does. And there are some excellent machine learning packages there as well. Um, that are very well documented and user-friendly. And so what would you say to maybe just someone who is not experienced in, in statistics necessarily, doesn't have a heavy stats background, what would you suggest to them if they were wanting to experiment with R or uh, get a better understanding of it? Um, is it something that was difficult for you to learn? Do you think it would be difficult for someone to learn without a stats background? One thing I always found to be helpful is just find a project, even if it's something as simple as, you know, you have some correlations to run for a class project, or you have some just small stats application that you could easily do in another more user-friendly program and just get, try playing with R, try getting used to the idea of importing data. Um, one thing I think that trips people up sometimes with programming languages, a colleague recently said to me, there's just too many ways to do something. And it's set up so that you have a lot of flexibility in terms of how you go about accomplishing a task, particularly when it comes to things like subsetting and manipulating data, but that can also be daunting to a beginner. Um, so being able to find a course or just find a simple project that will get you um, kind of get your feet wet is a, is a good place to start. So I see this term neural network pop up a lot online and at SIOP conferences and symposiums. So I decided to ask Rachel to clarify that for me. You know, what is meant by the term neural network in the context of artificial intelligence? A neural network consists of um, it, it basically it mimics the structure of a brain in terms of connections between data points. So it consists of layers of what are referred to as neurons that are able to determine complex relationships among inputs. Um, so for example, on the left side of your neural network, you'd have your inputs and then you'd have those feeding into a variety of different nodes that would be the neurons. And then at the end, you'll have one or more outputs depending on um, whether you're looking at a regression problem or a classification problem. And these can be used for a variety of things. Basically, it's a learning algorithm. So it can learn pretty much anything, whether it's how to drive a car. As you see uh, around Pittsburgh, we see the self-driving cars quite a bit out on the roads here. Um, or whether it's putting inputs of predictors of task performance in and then seeing um, prediction on uh, performance on the other side. Cool. 
so one additional thing to think about, particularly um, when we're talking about building machine learning models is understanding what it is we're feeding into the model. Um, and this kind of applies regardless of whether you're using some sort of a text analysis, um, neural networks, what have you. Um, uh, first of all, it's important that your data needs to be cleaned property, properly and needs to be good quality data. Um, otherwise, you may find that your model doesn't predict. For example, if you have, you can have a really highly sophisticated model, but if your measure of performance is not a good internally sound measure of performance, your model probably isn't going to actually predict performance. Um, likewise, analyzing text data can be difficult if you use prompts that weren't designed to generate um, the correct type of text responses. So for example, if you ask three different questions and then provide one text box, you now have three different data points all jumbled together within one chunk, as opposed to asking one question, providing a text box, asking a second question, and so on. Um, and also, algorithms are always going to seek to maximize prediction. That's what they're designed for. So this means that if you feed in a data set that contains demographic information into a machine learning algorithm, it will use that information as features when it builds a model. And as researchers, it's up to us to ensure that our models aren't biased and aren't using any sort of inappropriate information as predictors. So the stuff that we're focusing on is how to use text mining uh, for the purposes of personnel selection. This is Dr. Michael C. Campion. Michael is currently a consultant and researcher at Campion Services, where his research involves staffing, text analytics, strategic HR management, applicant and employer branding, and performance management. What we've focused on prior to this is on accomplishment records and because those are you know a big source of data and it's a whole bunch of words written into an essay form and it's fairly easy to uh, put that together into a corpus and text mine uh, what we're trying to do next is to look at interviewing we are looking at how voice transcription and text mining can be used conjunctively or together to score interviews. Hmm. And so we have people call in and we ask them a question or there's a recorded question, uh, something like, tell me about a time that you demonstrated leadership skills. And so they have three minutes to respond and we then text mine that data. We also then have them take an assessment that has to do with leadership and we look for uh, use that for construct validity purposes, but then we use the text that comes from that to uh, to score them. And then the third thing we're doing is looking at uh, stuff during recruitment. So that was personnel selection. Now we're considering use of text mining and recruitment, and we're trying to look at whether it's possible to identify and quantify uh, applicant brands. But that's kind of the general uh, gist of what we're doing currently. And saying text mining, are, are, we, are we searching for certain keywords or certain sequences of words that are pertinent to, you know, qualities of a good leader? Sure. So, so I can give you sort of a breakdown on what the process looks like. So, uh, so we use a computer software called SPSS Premium Modeler, 
And that's just one of many versions out there. Um, but it essentially uh, extracts 5,000 concepts. That's sort of the first step. And these concepts can be nouns, they can be terms, they can be phrases that appear frequently throughout the corpus. So across all the different essays, what comes up a lot, well, teamwork comes up a lot, so working in teams, stuff like that. Uh, this process involves sort of reducing the dimensionality of the semantic space. Um, and what the computer does is it's this pairwise occurrences of terms across windows of discourse. And by windows of discourse, I mean sentences, paragraphs, different documents, different essays uh, to generate vectors for terms. And this essentially, what this means in all is that it's constructing its own vocabulary for understanding the text. That's what the computer's trying to do. And then the second uh, uh, stage is that the user uh, you know, that'd be me or you goes through and uses what's called a concept map and tries to uh, group the terms the way they should be grouped. And this is important because the computer makes mistakes regarding how phrases and, and uh, words relate to one another. And this is an issue called uh, synonymy and polysyny. And so, you know, one word can mean several things uh, as polysyny and then synonymy is of course uh, the opposite. So then you save the data and then it re-extracts it again and you continue to go throughout this process until you get sort of a, a manageable number of concepts and you stop there. And then the computer generates categories uh, and categories are groups of concepts that commonly occur together and thus have semantic meaning for the computer. And then the user sort of retains, combines and eliminates categories based on reading essays, again, looking at the context of the word usage and so on. Um, then the computer assigns weights to the categories based on their relationships to criteria, uh, such in the, in the case of our previous study was human raters, um, ratings of these actual essays. Um, and this process is repeated for each competency that the organization might have. And then this creates an overall algorithm for each competency, which then makes it much easier because you can then use the same algorithm moving forward for a while. And that's sort of the process of it. Very interesting. So, so as opposed to, you know, just identifying certain keywords to where potentially the user could manipulate the situation to, you know, for their own gain, you know, saying certain keywords that they think are desirable, perhaps keywords that are within the job description uh, or something to that, that nature. Rather than that, the uh, text mining is, is, is searching for, is, is sorting out themes or, or competencies. That's exactly right. And it's trying to draw an inference about a person's level uh, uh, on a competency. And so it's basically trying to score content rather than, for example, English skill or something like that. However, I will note that we should be focusing on the potential for these so-called, you know, I guess you would call them outliers, where people try to manipulate how text mining is used by organizations. Could you, I guess, since we're on the topic, would you mind elaborating about that now, of, of how that could possibly go, uh, go south if, you know, users are to sort of figure out the system or the keywords that are desirable or, or, hey, make sure you say this and not that. We really haven't gotten into studying that much lately. 
I will say that one of the things we've looked at is these extreme outliers, and we found that it's very difficult for people to actually do that. So very, very small number of people have these extreme scores. Um, and it appears to be, like you say, where they sort of list keywords. Uh, and so that's something really for future research to focus on and, uh, and something we have not yet looked at, you know, just because we're generally trying to see if this is possible at all. Could you tell me a little more about, um, you mentioned applicant branding and the recruiting process. Could you elaborate more on that? Sure. So, um, so what we're doing currently is, is uh, taking data regarding applicants' uh, education, their work experience, their extracurricular activities, where they've studied abroad, stuff like that, and text mining it. And like I said before, it creates when the, the uh, system or the program rather uh, mines this data, it pulls out these categories. And so what we've done is try to go through the categories and group them uh, according to common themes. And for the particular study we're focused on now, we're looking at geographic themes. And we're looking at how these themes relate to, or rather how they align with the organization's strategic needs moving forward. Um, so in the context of what we're studying now, this organization uh, is global and, and so there are issues in the Middle East. Uh, in addition, there are also developing countries where they need to send human capital and they need to know if the people have the characteristics that are uh, going to help them you know, prosper once they get there. So the goal is to see if brands such as India, China, Middle East, uh, if those are more attractive to this organization or not. And so once you gather that intel, once you have that data, um, then what would you do with it at that point? What, how would you utilize it? Well, from a research perspective, uh, the goal is, is to say kind of two things. First, applicants have brands too. In the research on recruitment, we've been talking a lot about employer branding, employer reputation. Um, but the goal is to then sort of contribute to the literature in that way by saying that it's, you can also see it from the other side. Uh, the second thing is to say that uh, fit is important, yes, but fit can be viewed also as fit with the strategy of an organization or the strategic needs moving forward, which I think is interesting because typically it's looked at a much, at a much more micro level in assessment rather than uh, as alignment with the organization's strategy. So, because this is such a, in my opinion, a, a brave endeavor to, you know, explore this area of, of science, to apply this, you know, text mining and, and um, identifying competencies and themes, that's, I think, very neat, very innovative, and, and as you said, at the forefront of science in, in, in our field. So, uh, could you describe, you know, what are some obstacles or challenges that you've come across during your research? What hurdles have you encountered? So, I'd say... First, there are drawbacks uh, to using text mining. That, uh, for example, the user, uh, that is the person that sort of helps to program the data or guide the machine learning, uh, needs to be careful of how he or she uh, enables the computer to learn. And that includes sort of what information he or she is providing to the program. Um, the key thing you need to know is that computers 
model biases in scores. Uh, and so you need a large corpus of data. You need reliable and non-biased criteria. Um, I think there's also a potential for modeling non-predictive characteristics, which reduces reliability. Um, in the context of interviewing, this could be hesitations in speech patterns, lack of eye contact, uh, psychological distance, so lack of feedback. You know, you're giving an interview and and you're unable to sort of interpret feedback from the person you are being interviewed by. Uh, lack of tech savviness, I think, could be an issue. And then potential, of course, for modeling characteristics of candidates that are racially biased, potentially semantic differences across subgroups, uh, something of that nature. And I think really the drawbacks and the obstacles at this, you know, the present state of the literature on this topic in our area are fairly unknown. We really don't know a lot about what problems we're going to encounter. And I think that's one of the major things we should focus on moving forward. What, what would you say to someone who says, hey, Michael, I'm really interested in um, exploring how you know, text mining can benefit the work that I do, can um, add value to, to the type of work I'm producing. What would you say sort of um, best practices, maybe just some tips or, hey, if you're about to, you know, dip your feet in the water, here's some things that are top priority of what you should focus on. I think the first thing uh, that people should be aware of is I think uh, sort of best practice is to take your time when developing the algorithm, because this is the thing that influences whether the system works. It has so many downstream consequences. So if you're modeling scores that are biased, it leads to bias scores and you may not know it until you're in the legal you know, situation. Um, and that would be my primary bit of advice. Uh, in terms of best practices, uh, as we noted in our article a bit, you need to have uh, a decent amount of data in order to do something like this. You need to also make sure you have, like I said, a reliable criteria to predict. Otherwise, the algorithm really doesn't work. It doesn't predict anything, and it's kind of useless. Um, I think uh, really the best practices are kind of aligned with the potential issues. So you know you want to be careful of potential biases in the scores that you're not aware of. You want to make sure that you're actually modeling characteristics of candidates that are important. Um, but I think one of the major best practices that organizations need to do if they're going to use something like this is consider user reactions. Um, so I think that text mining has the potential to influence justice perceptions regarding the assessment system. I also think it has the potential to influence validity perceptions of the assessment procedures. I also think it might influence opportunity to perform perceptions um, as another best practice. It really depends on if you're talking about it from a researcher's perspective or a practitioner's. I think from a practitioner perspective, you want to be careful about what you're text mining. Uh, for example, I think text mining will make its way eventually into how organizations uh, sort of how the processes in organizations, for example, teamwork and stuff. I could easily see organizations trying to use uh, computer software and text mining to sort of uh, mine team interactions and communications, which then brings up the question of invasiveness. 
And then, you know, I think you know, there's this excellent article by Bang Gerger et al. It's on signaling games in JP. And, uh, and it talks about personnel selection as sort of an inherently adaptive process. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there are competitions between applicants and organizations, and they're trying to one-up each other. And so the major question is maybe not a best practice, but a question is how, you know, how are candidates going to use text mining and organizations use of text mining uh, in their selection procedures to their advantage. So as we were discussing before, you know, is there a way for them to sort of uh, use keywords or is there a way for them to get around uh, sort of the validity of the algorithm itself? One last question, maybe. Uh, sure. What are your next steps as far as what you're doing in machine learning? Which direction are you hoping to take your research moving forward? For the research we are trying like I said, to focus on interviewing right now, we have that project going on, and that is just a massive effort uh, trying to uh, you know, gather enough data. Like I said, the, the major obstacle for research like this is the amount of data and the amount of, and having some sort of criteria. So you know, what we're trying to do is uh, have people call in and spend you know, an hour on the phone answering interview questions and then have them take a battery of assessments and then have some PhD students score them. Uh, and, and that's sort of what we're focusing on with that. And then, and then we're looking at the, uh, the branding and whether that's possible. So that's some really cool stuff they're doing over there at Campion Services. I, I'm excited to see what type of results they find with their research. There's a really neat JAP article that he co-authored uh, titled Initial Investigation into Computer Scoring of Candidate Essays for Personnel Selection, so check it out if you'd like to learn more. And lastly, during my discussion with Neil, I brought up how this is all really exciting and a lot of people are optimistic about the unknown of, of what could happen 5 or 10 years from now, but on the other hand, there are a lot of people that seem to be quite skeptical about where this is going to take us and how it's going to shape work in the future, um, so he really addresses both sides of that. So I think you're asking, like, should we as IOs be more concerned, more optimistic? What are the potential drawbacks and potential opportunities for the future with, with uh, AI in particular? And you know, my reaction to that is yes. I mean, there's, you know, there's definite drawbacks, definite things to be concerned about and to be vigilant about, but there's also really great opportunities. And I think somewhere in between of either extreme is where the truth lies. So you know, on the drawback side, on the potential um, challenges and uh, potential obstacles that something like this, as it becomes more uh, pervasive, and there's nothing we as IO people can really do about that, is that you know, AI is really going to be the driving factor for what this next form of industrial revolution looks like. And so we're going to be along for this ride, whether we like it or not. Um, what we need to be sensitive to is how we both use it as a tool and both how how we use it and understand how it's affecting sort of the economy and the way work is set up overall and sort of a macro level. So the drawback side to using it as a tool 
we need to be wary that with this type of approach, with machine learning, with a more robust AI type system, like I described before, it's, you know, could be something that is learning its own features and it's um, beginning to turn unstructured, just, you know, to us, maybe white noise data into something that it's making sense of and pulling patterns out on its own. Um, you know, you get into that Dust Bowl empiricism that we all learn about in graduate school, where if we can't explain the prediction, how valuable is the prediction? And then what types of impacts can those, those predictions have on um, protected classes, whether it's a selection um, issue or, or maybe, you know, what other types of impacts is it having? If we, don't, if we can't explain it, then we just, we just don't know. And I think a lot of times IO people in particular get nervous about an, an AI or a machine learning based solution because it is a black box sometimes. You know, our goal is to explain um, you know, cognition and behavior. That's a problem. So um, I think we can potentially be sidelined or we can be potentially marginalized by other vendors and other companies that are doing these things. Um, and just applying them in the marketplace because they're accurate and predictive and because they're, they're quick and scalable, which a lot of times I work is not, it's not always scalable and it's not always quick. You know, we could potentially be saying, well, you know, Hey, you can't explain it. And, you know, but if at the end of the day, the businesses and the people that are making these purchase decisions, they just care about the prediction of the, of the equation. We need to be able to speak to that. And you know, educate folks on why that might not be the best way to go, even if you have an incrementally more accurate prediction than what we're able to provide with all the explanatory power. So I do think the dust bowl empiricism is uh, is an issue. Um, and like we were talking about before, I think another drawback is just by throwing in that buzzword doesn't necessarily mean your tool or your product is is better. Um, like in our example we found a very specific use case for why a machine learning based approach makes sense to automate the coding or the quantification of how relevant people are in our database. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the recruiters are going to get much more value out of it. The recruiters are going to be faster. Um, we're going to come up with better decisions. The clients are going to have people that are better for the job at the end of the day. What we might be doing is just coming up with a way to repeatedly look for the same exact people over and over again. And just because that's there and it's making you more efficient doesn't necessarily mean you're coming up with a better, you're coming up with more insight. I will say on the plus side, on the opportunity side, um, I think a lot of opportunities lie in IO having the chance to grow and evolve and dig in deeper at a very transitional stage of our economy and, and how work is being done. What I mean by that is we need to realize that AI and machine learning isn't just a tool that we can use for our own processes and systems and products. We need to realize that it's fundamentally changing how people find work, the types of jobs they take, what organizations they look like. And we're already starting to see that with automation, right? So I think McKinsey recently came out with a report that said 30% of the tasks for a majority of jobs in the U.S. could potentially be automated. There is a really famous article that came out a few years ago um, that said almost half of all U.S. jobs could potentially be automated. Um, and, you know, you might be able to nitpick uh, the methodology about how they actually coded that and come to that conclusion. But the point is, we're going to only see more automation, not less, over the, the coming years. And I really like something that Greg Kurzweil, who's uh, really famous futurist, he, he would say, if I were 
if you're back in, in the year 1900 and you're telling that you're telling everybody only two percent of you are going to work in agriculture and only nine percent of people are going to work in factories in a hundred years everyone would freak out right mm-hmm. everyone would you know lose their minds and not know what to do and think the world is ending but that's actually what happened and so he says that what what was able to compensate for those job losses was that people were able to find other jobs at the top of the skill tree. And he calls it the top of the skill tree. And I think that's really interesting for IO people because there are a number of interesting questions we can really dig into that. Um, we can we can say, you know, for, for example, what can we do to help more people get to the top of that skill tree? You know, if, if it's some, if there's some inequality there, not just of income inequality, but just skill inequality, how do we help more people get to those higher level skills where more of the jobs will be invented? We might not know exactly what those jobs will look like, but um, because AI and automation is going to make it such that people will have to be more skilled and have newer skills and different skills than they have now, how do we help more people get there? You know, I think we can even help people identify and define what those skills are and be more proactive about that. And so, you know, I think some tried and true methods uh, and, and processes that we do as I as call this like job analysis, job design, we can really have a contributing um, voice and hand in what those jobs look like and hopefully set them up in such a way that the most people can take advantage of them. Not a member yet? Sign up membership gives you the edge you need in a competitive workplace. Find out more at www.psyop.org. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of the IO Podcast. We hope you enjoyed, and if you have any comments or suggestions for podcast guests or topics, please feel free to tweet me at Kelly S underscore Stewart. I'm your host, Kelly Stewart. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and stay tuned for more to come on the next episode of the IO Podcast.